Welcome to Pint Size Science Podcast, a new podcast started in collaboration with Science in the News, a group of graduate students at Harvard University striving to open the lines of communication between basic research scientists and the wider community. In each episode, a different graduate student will sit down with a scientist and talk to them about their work. I'll be the host for this episode. My name is Valentina Lago-Marcino, and I'm a third-year graduate student in the Biological Biomedical Sciences program at Harvard University. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Veronica Martinez-Sardeno. Dr. Martinez-Sardeno is an associate professor at the Department of Medical Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at UC Davis. Dr. Martinez-Sardeno completed her PhD from Autonoma University in Madrid, Spain, She then came to the U.S. to perform three postdoctoral trainings, one in neuroanatomy at University of Columbia, another in stem cells at University of California, San Francisco, and last in autism at the Mind Institute at UC Davis. In our conversation, we talk about the work her lab is doing to better understand neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism and fragile X syndrome. She'll talk about some of the most important questions in their field, and also some of the most basic, such as, does a child with autism have more neurons in their brain or less? And what kind of neurons? And why is it so important to answer these questions? And why is it so hard? We will also hear about two exciting initiatives Dr. Veronica Martinez-Sardeno is doing outside of her lab. First is starting the first brain bank in Latin America, This will enable scientists to study neurodevelopmental disorders and neurodegenerative diseases in Latin American populations. She has also started a nonprofit called the Ventricular Foundation, which the goal is to better educate young students in her community about the importance of studying the brain and what it means to be a scientist. As a young graduate student who tries to understand how our science impacts society, it was inspiring for me to listen to Dr. Veronica Martinez-Sardeno's opinions about how our science can impact society. So without further ado, here is our conversation between me and Dr. Veronica Martinez-Sardeno. Welcome, Dr. Veronica Martinez-Sardeno. We're delighted to have you on Pint Size Science Podcast. Do you want to tell the audience a little bit about your work? Okay, thank you so much for having me here today. And I really appreciate your invitation to talk to you. And um, Well, my lab is in UC Davis, right? And we are focused in brain development and also in neurodevelopmental uh, conditions. Specifically, we focus in autism and in fragile X. And we do two types of research. One is post-mortem research. We gather brains from people when they pass away, they donate the brains, and we study the anatomy and the pathology of autism. And the other is we work with animal models. If, for example, we have an, a rat that has a brain that is mimicking the human brain, the things that we see in the human brains. And these animal models, we can use them to better understand the, the condition in human, but also to test treatments. And we also have some projects in in how the normal brain develops, because we still don't know. And that's all. (laughs) Yeah, wow, that's super interesting. Um, And and so what initially got you interested in this this area of research? Um, Have you always wanted to be a scientist? Well, really, I think that I always wanted to be a scientist. But when I was a little girl, 
where I'm from, there wasn't science, there was no university in science, there was no research center, so I never met a scientist or heard about science. But I think that I always wanted to know how things work and why things happen and when. So I think that since I was very young, I, I really had the scientists inside me. And then when I went to high school and I took my first time biology, I just fell in love with science and, and I decided that this is what I, I wanted to do. Even I had to go outside my, my, my home, my comfort zone, you know, but, but I think that I always wanted to be a scientist. What science I didn't matter. I chose a science that was a little bit unknown like, for example, neuroscience, we don't know a lot still, but I like immunology, I like microbiology, all these sciences that were like, still a lot of things to do with it. And, you know, in our body, the brain is the, the, the big unknown. So I, I, I did my PhD in neuroanatomy and brain development and my postdoctoral training too. And when I became a professor and I started my own lab, I decided that neurodevelopmental um, condition was a new field a new field for me and I realized that there is not a lot of studies in the anatomy of autism or in the pathology and that there is not a lot of people with expertise in prenatal anatomy of the brain and how the brain forms. So I decided that joining this expertise that I got during my training with this new field was a very good idea, mainly because there is hardly any lab in the world doing this kind of things and I thought that I would be able to, to add something new and that's why really I chose autism because that and also because as you know, it's, uh, autism appears uh, in children and for me, you know, as a mother that I am, children are very important and I just can't imagine a, a, a person with autism or a mother with a kid with autism. So if I decided that if I can help a little bit in any way, it would be a good way to spend, you know, my research years that after all is your whole life, right? Right, right. Um, wow. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, it's, it's exciting. It's an exciting area. Um, you, you mentioned like when you first started, there um, wasn't too much known. The brain was this unchartered territory. Um, do you feel like your time in science that have we learned a lot more um, or? Well, I, I seen the, the thing that we know about brain development evolved very fast. For example, when I was a student, we thought that during prenatal development, there was cells that divide to give rise to the cells in the cortex, in the cerebral cortex, and there were cells that help the newborn neurons to migrate. And now we know that these are the same cells, are the progenitor cells, the radial glial cells. So this is such a basic concept. And this was discovered when I was already a student. So things have gone so fast, and since then we have discovered new areas in the, developing in the developing cerebral cortex with new kinds of stem cells and we keep on finding and finding so this is going really fast and I think that probably when I'm an old lady you know we are gonna know things that I cannot imagine right now this is in the field of neurodevelopment now in the field of autism we know very little we know very little because there is a lot of research in perhaps in how to, in treatment, there is a lot of research in diagnosis and even research about genes that may be implicated to autism in animals, right? But there is no research in the anatomy or the pathology of autism. That is how really the human brain with autism means. We don't know anything about that. And, and that I have not seen any evolution on that. So this is what we are working on right now in the lab. 
what do you think are um, some of the biggest questions um, just across the field that um, that you'd be excited to or find or if anyone could find? Yeah, so in, in autism, we really don't know how the brain is. And when I tell you we don't know, is that we don't know absolutely anything. For example, we don't know if a brain with autism has more cells or less cells and what kind of cells are involved in autism. So this is one of the very basic and simple things that we do in my lab. We take the cerebral cortex and we say, okay, let's count neurons. Let's count excitatory neurons. Let's count inhibitory neurons, different kind of neurons, glial cells. There is more, there is less. We don't know because there is four or five labs in the whole world just doing that and all the data that is coming out is contradictory in, uh, among other reasons because there is not enough brains to study and autism is very heterogeneous so depending what patients you are studying you may get different answers so so this this is an area that really needs to be to be studied uh, just the very basic things cell numbers cell types circuitry we have a little idea about that but we don't have really a uh, good number of scientists looking at that and it's just the basis because imagine if you don't know how the brain is how you can treat the condition okay there is a lot of therapy to make of what you have in your brain the best right or there is a lot of treatments that are empirical that mean let's give this like that to see what happened or treatments for comorbidity of autism for example anxiety medications designed for anxiety not for autism for depression etc but a medication for autism, a treatment for autism doesn't exist and we cannot really develop it until we don't know how the brain is. It's the very basic. Right, right. As, as you were mentioning, um, there's only four or five people in the world that are kind of in this area. Um, so what's kind of your process if you, um, you find an exciting result and you're, and you're not sure what it means? Um, who, do you, who, do you, who do you go to or um, do you well, just have a process for that? <laughs> it's very difficult to find things. When we find a thing, the first thing that we do is to repeat the experiments many times, right? Mm -hmm. And in 10 years that I've been studying autism, we have not found so many things, right? Mm -hmm. But when we have found one thing, we have repeated in a different set of patients and using different methodology. And if we keep obtaining the same result, one, the first time, the second, the third, this means that is true. Who I can go to? Nobody, because nobody is doing the same, you know? So sometimes I give a phone call to somebody who is doing the same. I found this and you, I found that. Yeah. <laughs> no problem, because it's the opposite. Yeah. So it's not really much. When you go to conferences, right? You meet people, you talk to the people who is doing similar things. And we try to, to help each other. But as I said, there is not really a lot of people, a lot like doing the thing that we do. Yeah, yeah. But do you, um, do you collaborate with, um, like you mentioned, one of your um, methods um, is using human, human brains. Um, and so do you um, collaborate closely with um, any physicians um, or just or banks that you get these from? Yeah. So there is brain banks. And in the world, there is a lot of brain, bra brain banks for neurodegenerative diseases, for example, for Alzheimer's. It's easy because a lot of people have Alzheimer's and they donate their brains, right? Now, we are talking about autism that is kids' brains. It's 
more difficult. Prusotism is a relatively new condition. It was discovered, the doctors need to learn about it, the brain banks need to be set up, and then people need to sign, and then, of course, they need to pass away to donate their brains. So it's a very long process, and I don't think that we have reached, you know, um, the, the final, the final goal so far of collecting brains with autism. There is two big brain banks in the United States, the Neuro, the Neurobiobank eh, from the NIH that has some brains and then there is a, another initiative by different universities that also collects brain. But it's very difficult to get brains with autism. I have my own brain bank and we have around 150 brains, but I mainly collect fragile X eh, brains that are a type of a monogenic type of autism. And then, since this is a big problem and a big limitation for our type of research, and that's why there is no labs that do postmortem studies, because there is no postmortem brain, I have also studied the first brain bank in neurodevelopmental disorders in Latin America. So we are working in gathering brains in Puerto Rico, in Mexico, in Colombia, and we hope to, to spread if we find enough funding because this brain will be useful not only for Latin America, but also for the whole world to do research in autism. Plus, you know that most of the research in patients is done in white males. So this will also help to, to include the Hispanic population into the studies and also many women. Wow, that's, but that is, it's so important. Um, and are there differences um, in the percent of population that have autism in Latin America? Um, so, one thing is the real thing that is going on, the data. Another thing is what is reported. Right. So, what is reported is, for example, in Mexico right now, it's one in every 100. But then you go to Europe and it's one in every 200 kids. And then in United States, keep on going up and up, and now I think that it's one in 56 kids. So, you need to see the background on this information. In some countries, there is not so much knowledge. In some countries in Latin America, doctors don't know about autism. But so the, 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 stat, the epidemiology may be a little, you know, different to the real data. But at the same time, in the United States, what I understand is that many neurodevelopmental conditions are not covered by the insurance by the private insurance, but autism is. So doctors may classify kids with autism in Vietnam, it's not autism, just a, a similar, very similar condition because then the kid will be covered, otherwise he wouldn't get treatment. And I really think that this is affecting the numbers in the United States. Until very recently, we didn't know if the number of kids were with autism were increasing or it's just the epidemiology studies are getting better, right? And I think that is a mixture of both. It's increasing because as you know, autism may be, an, may be developed prenatally because mm -hmm. uh, pollution in the environment, because chemicals in the food that you ingest when you are pregnant. So all these things, all these conditions are not improving in, the, in, in America or in Europe. So it's normal that there is more kids with autism, but at the same time, the epidemiology, it depends on each country, you know. Right, right, right. Um, and and how, would, how would you go about testing some of these environmental factors of autism? Well, there is a lot of labs who are working on that, right? Uh, the cause of autism are, three, environmental, genetic, and immune. 
but they are all linked because the genetics give you a predisposition to have the environmental factors, perhaps to activate your immune system. So it's, everything is mixed. And what people does is he take the animal model, for example, the rat, or even there is people who study macaque, right? That are, macaques are more social, right? more similar to human. Um, perhaps they made the, you can make the, the animal to breathe pollution, car pollution, you mm -hmm. know? Or in a highway, like the pollution, the, it's in a highway. And you see what, what what is the result in the baby? I also know, for example, um, I know a girl in Puerto Rico who is studying the IQ of kids that live around the airport and around the big highway in, in Puerto Rico. And what she found is that the kids that develop around these areas have a lower IQ than the kids that develop in clean areas. Wow. And this not only affect the IQ, I mean, uh, socially, and you can develop autism. So there is a studies in human, there is a studies in animals. Yeah, yeah, well, it's, um, yeah, it's super, it's super important to think, especially for neurodevelopment, how our environment um, affects that um, yeah. in every, every aspect of our, our brain. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think is, um, are there any controversies in the field? Um, oh, yeah. Or are there any, oh, wow. like, <laughs> hot things yeah. that are still being debated um yeah a lot of things because we don't know anything about the brain with autism but for example when we study the number of cells i just want to know how many cells are in the brain so there is people that there is so much more neurons for example and other people say oh no different and other people no there is less and i like you know or the people who say that there is more we have found no changes in some areas increases in other areas decreases in inhibitory neurons, but even if you say that there is an increase, is this increase, huge increase, is a mild increase, it depends on the area. So many, we have many contradictory data, but it may be because autism is very heterogeneous, so it depends on your cohort of patients, depends on what exactly you are studying, or the methodology that you are using, and this we are not going to know until more people help in, the, in this quest of understanding the brain. Yeah, um, I imagine that just differences in mm -hmm. protocols and how they count. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, what, like, from your time as being um, either throughout your trainings or as a as a instructor of a of a lab, um, what has been some of the most exciting pieces of of data that you have that your lab has gotten? <laughs> well, when. One thing just related to autism and cell numbers that we are studying, we discovered that there is a specific type of inhibitory cell that is called the chandelier cell that looks like a chandelier, like it's hanging from the ceiling, you know, with many branches, the axons is branched and really looks like a chandelier. Uh, is that there is a reduced of this in autism and happen in all the cases that we have studied human brains and happen independently of the methodology that we have used to count these cells. So we have repeated these studies several times. We have published a couple of papers on that and we are going to publish very soon. Um, we are going to revisit it in this topic. But at this point, after being studying these cells for many years, I'm sure that these cells uh, are decreasing number. Why? We don't know if they are not born. We don't know if they don't migrate to the right place and they are in the brain, but in a different place and we don't see them. Um, we don't know if they are fine and suddenly they die, so we don't know any of that. All this year only told me that there is less cells of that kind of channel. Mm -hmm. 
Cool, that's super interesting. So these um, chandelier um, cells, are they, um, I guess, um, are they usually found throughout the entire brain? Yes, they are during the entire brain. There is also discrepancy on that because of people say that they are more abundant in upper layers two or three. Other people say that, in fact, they are not present in layers five or six. They are, I've seen them many times. You know, so, and also depend on the areas. Some areas have more, some areas have less. But as I say, these are cells that were just uh, described very recently. In fact, I think that Cajal saw that there was like some axonist connections. And I think that was Somoji that in the early 80s or late 70s described the Chandile cell, but we never put them together. And somebody said, oh, look, these cells are the owners of these axons. Wow. And yeah. then you know, I said, oh, then I can study them. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought you were, um, I think I read on your bio that you were part of the, um, the Cajal Club. Um, but oh, yeah. just for listeners that might not know, do you want to um, just say who Cajal is. <laughs> oh, yes, Santiago Ramón y Cajal is a Spanish scientist that from, let's say, the early, the early 1900s, uh, uh, sorry, late 1900s, early 20th century, and is one of the, the scientists that found most of the things that we know. Sometimes when I don't know something, I just go to Rick Cajal, you know, and he published something in 1908, and I'm like, oh, wow, he's right. <laughs> you know, he was a person who first had money and time, so this is good for science, right? Yeah. But he had his microscope, and he dedicated himself to, to just draw the cells that he saw in the brain. He used the Golgi method, there is a silver method, the silver precipitating the cells, and you can see the morphology, the morphology of the cells very nicely. So he just drew the cells, um, the circuitry, he, he discovered so many things. And also, at this point, we didn't know anything. We didn't know that the cell was a unit. We, know, we, we thought that the brain was a situ, that all the cells were communicated through the cytoplasm. And was Cajar who said, no, no. There is, there is individual cells, in fact, he said, there is cells that are long projection and that project far away in the brain, and there is other that are short projections that connect with neighboring cells. So he discovered, he, he said that excitatory, there is inhibitory cells. He also drew very nicely the developing brain and many of these progenitor cells that we have talked about. So, so he was in the perfect moment and the perfect time to discover everything with the perfect method that was the Golgi method. Unfortunately, then there was a war in Spain, the uh, Spanish Civil War, and this stopped a lot his research. But then um, after the war, there was an institute, the Cajal Institute, right? And this is uh, an institution that I just read, I think that is like some of anniversary of this institution, and there is great anatomies there. Great anatomies, and I was lucky during college uh, to do to get a fellowship to spend one year in the Cajal Institute in Madrid. So it was great, and I learned a lot. And I think that that's why I became a neuroanatomist. <laughs> oh wow, that is that's super cool. Um, as a um, just a grad student neuroscientist, like Cajal, like every neuroscientist I know talks about Cajal. <laughs> um, and it's really exciting. Um, that's super cool. Um, so I know that um, even with all of your busy stuff going on, um, you also have time to run a nonprofit called the Ventricular Foundation. 
Um, and I just wanted, wondering if you could um, tell us a little bit about this organization um, and the things you do there. Okay, so it's called Ventricular Foundation. I think that you can imagine because the ventricles in the brain, right? And what I always like, I always have feel that there is not enough equality in the world, right? And that some people have access to more education than other people. Mm, and since I was very young, I volunteered for many organizations. When I arrived to California, and then there is like, I don't know, like 15, 16 years ago, I started to volunteer in a Hispanic school teaching migrant, immigrant Mexican kids. And I just, this touched my heart because I realized how less access to education they have and this is gonna just uh, be there for the rest of their lives you know you don't study you don't go to college you are just not gonna have the same opportunities in life so during when i was a postdoc i was volunteering a lot of schools and when i arrived to, to here to uc davis i continue volunteers but i said look i think that it's time for me to do something bigger right to help these kids and i started my foundation in the foundation, the main activity that we do is to visit the schools. Right now we are not doing that because, you know, the pandemic. But for example, last year in 2019, we taught 5,000 kids. And I hope that some of them, you know, got something home. We teach them about science. We use the brain as a tool because it's what we do. We do experiments with them and we serve as a role models for them. Also, we go to this area in California, it's very rich in, in Hispanic population, so we go to a lot of Hispanic schools that are in English or in Spanish, but they see us, and I think that this helps. And I'm going to share with you a, an example, like one of the last schools that we went before COVID, we were showing some brains to the kids and say something in Spanish, and one kid told, told to the other kid, oh, oh my goodness, the doctor speaks Spanish, and I said, yes. I mean, why? You never saw a doctor speaking Spanish, why? And I said, you can be a doctor, that's a mother, you are Hispanic, you are a woman, whatever you are, you can do whatever you want. And this is the message of the foundation. Not to learn, more, to learn about science too, about the brain, but it's really a tool to, to, learn, to put all these kids in their way to success in life, whatever they want to do. Another thing that we do, we have started recently to reach Latin America and to teach people about autism mainly doctors, so for example, we organize in conference in Ecuador, in Colombia, about autism, how to diagnose, how to do research in autism, with the hope of bumping up a little bit, all, all this in Latin America. But this is also on hold, so we are moving our conference from virtual, I mean, from presencial conference to, to virtual conference, and we hope that very soon we can go there because it's the best way to learn in person. So kind of as a, a final thought, um, what are you think the general public needs to know about, um, about this area of research or um, what understanding the brain can, can do to, to better yeah. us and society? Well, I really think, but this is subjective is what I think, you know, that science is not very well taught in this country and in general, and that people don't put a lot of of importance in science. I think that the general population need to, need to learn about science in general, not only neuroscience, but about everything. We need to educate better the population because it's very important. Science is like move science and engineering, of course, 
all these things move the country forward and any country. So I think that in general, we need a better understanding of science, but also about the brain in particular, I think that if people realize how the brain control who we are, our society will be more permissive. If we will understand that every person is who they are because the brain is in one way or in the other, and also understand that the brain is plastic and you can improve yourself every day, I think that we will be all of us better off and we will live in a better society. So I think that it's important to know yourself as a person and your brain that after all is who you are. You are your brain, so it's very important to understand that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more as well. Um, um, well, thank you so much for your time. Um, if people wanted to hear more about, um, about your work and the Ventricular Foundation, um, where's the best place to, um, to reach you? Um, well, you can go to our website, www.ventricular.org, or you can join us in Facebook, because we communicate a lot of our activities through Facebook and also news about the brain, about autism. So I think that this would be the best way. And if you really want to know something very specific about science, you can give me a call always. Mission <laughs> is in the university, you know, or you are a student on neuroscience and you need help, I'm always happy to help. Um, cool, great. Um, well, yeah, thanks. Thank you again so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. find out more about Dr. Veronica Martinez Cerdeño, you can go to her website at www.ventricular.org or on Facebook at the Ventricular Foundation. Thanks for checking out Pint Size Science Podcast and stay tuned for our next episode.